and uh, we're going to uh, go to God in prayer together, and uh, then we will uh, dive into our, our text for this morning. Um, Heavenly Father, I, uh, I pray that you be with me this morning as I uh, uh, share your word, as I uh, dig open uh, the treasure vault that is your scriptures, and I pray that as I, uh, as I unpack, as I try to share, as I as I try to reveal the treasures that are that are contained therein, that you would um, speak uh, through me and despite me. Um, I pray that that your grace would be on me, that that your grace would be on the folks in this room, that they would hear from you and know you more just through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, Amen. So, uh, yet again, we forgot to light the three Advent candles preceding. shouldn't allow children to play with fire. Uh, We have not historically done the Advent candles as a part of uh, Christmas services because it's easy to forget uh, for me, and and, um, it's something that somebody else would have to organize, and and so it just hasn't happened. Um, uh, Over the weeks, we've talked about different topics related to the Incarnation, and related to God becoming um, flesh, like stepping into a world and becoming a man, becoming one of us uh, to reconcile us to him. And, and we've worked on different little aspects of it and maybe some of the deeper like theological nuggets that are kind of heavy and, and heady and all that. And this week we're going to talk about kind of a different component of that, like because the incarnation, the arrival of God as a man, as one of us, is such a huge topic. Um, it's, it's impossible to pin it down well and, and everywhere, and there's so much mystery attached and everything else. Um, but today we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about the joy of it. Um, and I, I know joy is a word we toss around quite a bit in this season. It's, it's, uh, almost meaningless. Um, years ago I did a, I did a message where I talked about joy being the ice cream that doesn't melt. Uh, it was the Dairy Queen sermon for those of you guys who are here. It's, it's, and the idea is joyous happiness that can't be decimated. It doesn't always feel happy, but there's an underlying feeling of contentment and okayness and life is good and God has me. And even if it's hard today, he is on it kind of thing. And so as we talk about the joy of Christmas, we're not going to talk about our joy. We're going to talk about God's joy. And actually, I have a story. And uh, this story uh, was originally written by uh, Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher. And I'm not going to tell his version of it because it's not as interesting as mine. Um, but it's the story of a king. So once upon a time, there was a king. And he was the most powerful king in the world at the time. He was so powerful and so wealthy that there was nowhere he could see like from his castle parapets, that was not his, that he did not control. Um, He was so wealthy that other kings would come to him just so that they could bow down and show fealty, and they would would pay him tribute, and they would listen to his advice and direction. And even, to some degree, he would decide which king would stand and which one would fall just from his throne, because he was so wealthy and powerful. And his his castle, I mean, you guys have seen, like, you got to kind of picture this in your head. His castle was opulent, and it was huge, and it was, it was the sort of thing that you see in, you know, calendars that, that makes, makes you sort of think, wow, I wish I was there. You know what I mean? Um, and it almost doesn't seem real because it's so gorgeous. And down around it, as with all castles, there was a village. 
And one day, this king is walking on the parapet, like walk, with the parapet's kind of the wall, right? Uh, and he's walking, and he's looking down at the village beneath him, and he spots way in the distance a maiden. And he is struck by how pretty she is. And he stops and he watches her for a little while, and then he's got a lot to do because he's king. And, you know, so he sets out to, to do the things he has to do. And, and a few days later, he's touring and looking at the village again, and he spots her again. And again, he's blown away by how beautiful this woman is. And he stops and he watches her. And it takes a little longer this time before he finally kind of builds up the will to walk away and, and get about his business. And, and as the days and days and days and weeks went by, he would find excuses to go up and watch this young woman down in the village. And then one day he realized that he'd fallen in love with her, right? And being that he's king and he's powerful and he can do anything he wants, he says, well, I'm going to make her my wife, right? This is not the story of David. It's not going where you think it is. Uh, <laughs> he thinks, I'm going to make this woman my wife. I, I love her. She will be my wife. Everything I want, I have. And I will and I'll have this woman as my wife. She will love me and I'll love her. And so he um, goes and he gets his advisors and they get the royal entourage together, you know, with the, the big carriage, right? And the, the horses and the, the soldiers with their trumpets. What are they called? Trumpets? Announcer, like his, the heralds, that's what they are, who announce the coming of his carriage, right? And, and they get it all lined up, and they're in the courtyard, and they raise the, the portcullis, and they lower the drawbridge, and the, the whole entourage starts to march out, and he looks at his carriage, and he looks at his soldiers just dressed in, like, ornate armor, and hears the trumpets and sees the, the, the gold, like, gilded you know, chariot and looks around at the castle and he realizes like, like if I pick this woman up, like have my, my people pick her up and bring her here, she's going to stand in my throne room and, and be surrounded by wealth. And the carpets in my throne room are thicker than, than the grass in most fields. And, and my throne is elevated and it's amazing. And, and for her to be in my presence as an ordinary common woman, like what's she going to say when I tell her I love her and want to marry her? No, <laughs> of course not, because everything about the castle and everything about my wealth and everything about my stuff would overwhelm her, and she would have no free will. Now, husbands, understand what I'm saying here. It sometimes feels like it would be a wonderful thing if you could like overcome your wife's free will, right? But the truth of the matter is, if she has no choice to love you, she doesn't love you. If she has no will, if she has no freedom, then she is never really your wife. She is your subject. And the king realizes this and says, I can't do this. If I bring her here, it will overpower her, and I'll have another servant. And I don't want a servant. And so he, he stop, 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 you know, and they stop the procession and throw it in reverse and beep, 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 and it backs up. And he stands there and he thinks about it and scratches his head and everybody looks nervous, right? You don't want to make the king mad. And he realizes, like, well, if, the, if bringing her up here is the problem, then I'll go to her. And so he gets in the carriage. He says, all right, let's go. And, you know, the trumpets and everything else, and they go out of the door, and they start winding around the hill on the way down through the village. And the villagers are doing what you would naturally do when the king comes by. They're coming out, and they're kneeling down. And they're averting their eyes. And they're overwhelmed by the presence of the king. And as the carriage began to approach her little home, 
her humble little abode, she steps out and with her neighbors kneels down before him. And all of a sudden he's frozen. And he realizes, what's going to happen when I step out of the carriage and I take her hand and I bring her in? It's the same problem. What's she going to do? Say no? Is she going to push me away? And he hits on the, all right, bring us back up. And they pass her up and they go back up to the castle. And he goes to his room and he just falls ill with, with despair because he loves this woman. He wants to know her. He wants to be a part of her life and for her to be a part of his life. He doesn't eat and he just thinks and worries and tries to figure it out, realizing that everything about who he is becomes a trap that he can never have this woman love her, love him, right? Like he can only have a subject. And so he calls his advisors together after weeks of not eating and and not leaving his room. And he sits down and he meets with them all day. And he walks out of the meeting and the drawbridge opens and he walks out the front door and he passes a beggar along the way. And he um, sizes him up and says, I need your clothes, your boots and your motor. No, he trades clothes with him, trades his outfits, trades clothes. And he leaves the beggar behind in royal robes. And he goes out as a beggar, having renounced his throne. Because he knew the only way he could win the love of this woman was to no longer be king. And he is overjoyed at having lost everything to to bring this woman, to woo her, to fall in love with her, to be in a relationship with her. As we're rounding out our last, our fourth week of Advent, we're going to talk about the incarnation, but we're going to talk about it from God's perspective. God loves us. He loves you. And you know what? Not only does he love you, like love you, I can speak. He loved you when you were awful. All right? You know that one memory you have that like replays in your head while you're trying to go to sleep at night? Like I'm not the only one who has this, right? That day, he watched you and said, I love you and I will do anything to be in relationship with you. I will do anything to be close to you. When you were the worst, when you were his enemy, when you were bitter and hateful, God loved you. And he loved you enough to step out of his wealth and his opulence and come to you on that level. The story of Christmas is not a Hallmark movie. Instead, it's a good love story. The greatest love story of all time, right? Y'all still with me or did I lose all of you? The main idea we're going to talk about today is that the Father sent the Son to reconcile the creation to himself because he loves us. Because God is glorified through showing love. Through God, like God is glorified by showing mercy. But most of all, he loves you. And it is not like the bad boy band kind of love. The warm and squishy inside, you know, nonsense kind of love. It's the kind of love that would die for you horribly and shamefully. That is worth celebrating. And the incarnation is central to that. And so we're going to dive into Colossians. This is actually a hymn. Paul, in the beginning of his letter to the church in Colossus, um, breaks away from his primary text very early, and he incorporates an early Christian hymn. This is what people sang in church once upon a time. It doesn't have a very good chorus, 
but I think it's like like I think it's as powerful a message as as any you're going to hear. Now, this is Colossians chapter one verses fifteen to seventeen, um, beginning of the song. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, pause here, okay? Um, Because there's a lot in this, right? Like this is when songs were theological like messages. They were books. Um, He is the image of the invisible God. And we talked about this last week. Those of you all who are here, those of you all who weren't, like it's on the Facebook page, it's on the podcast thingy, it's on the other thingy that you can listen to on the website, um, sermon.net, sermon.net. Um, and, and so, like, if you want to listen to it, um, you can check it out. Nobody has seen God, and nobody can see God as he is because he is overwhelming. He is so much bigger and more than we are capable of even comprehending. And he is so holy, and in our sinfulness, we'd be destroyed by being in his presence that, like, like we cannot see God. However, God, knowing us, came with an image, right, with a face with hands, with feet, with a voice. Like, like he sat next to people in synagogue and sang. Did the response of reading sometimes, right? They probably had that in synagogue, I'm sure. Um, and the firstborn of all creation. Some people have read this over the years and argue that Jesus was born. That is not what this means, okay? It's not what it means. It's referring to the firstborn as a position of authority. Got it? So in the ancient world, if I had a son who was the firstborn, my firstborn would receive the lion's share of the inheritance, and he was in charge, right? Which is a problem because sometimes the firstborn was horrible. Not that my firstborn is horrible right now, or I'm saying anything about your firstborn, but like sometimes they were horrible. But Jesus is in authority, the firstborn of all creation. He is over, above, and in charge of creation. So time, space, weather, earth, mountains, everything. For, Paul continues, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's a lot there. It's a Paulism, as my wife said earlier today. Um, and Paul is very, like, well, he probably is a song. Paul didn't write this, probably. Or maybe he was a songwriter. Um, but Paul wrote this, or Paul quotes this, and what it's saying, ah, what it's saying is, like everything, air, Space, you know, dark matter, uh, the stars in the sky, the, the position of president, the, you know, emperor of Rome, um, authorities, spirits, demons, everything, like everything was created through him and by him and for him. Meaning for his glory, meaning everything is pointed back to him. It is his thing. And in the very beginning, they like the decision was made to give Adam a choice, right? And this is that choice. It's the same choice that the maiden has when the king shows up as a, as a beggar, right? It's the same choice. Yes or no, love me or don't. And a lot of people say, well, why do you put the apple in the garden? That seems nuts, right? I don't leave a gun in my kid's room. Well, I'm in Montana now, so I think that's part of the deal. But, like, I wouldn't leave a, like, it seems like a really dangerous thing to do. But if he never gives Adam a choice, Adam can be nothing but a robot, right? 
And so Adam has the choice of walking away from God. And he did choose. God loved the creation. God loved Adam. The creation was perfect. And after that, it was broken. And it is in steady decline and and falling apart, like things are rotting away and sin is everywhere and people are broken and they hurt each other and everything else. And that is heartbreaking to God. And yet he still holds all things together. There's the last line there, meaning if he lets go, it all falls apart. It's a little like trying to get my daughter to ride a bicycle once upon a time, right? There was a period of time where you take the training wheels off. Anybody remember doing this? And you run behind and you hold the seat. And what happens if you let go? Bam, right? <laughs> um, this is a very tight slice of it. I'm, I know eventually, in theory, they learn to ride the bike, but the creation will never learn to run without God, without Christ. And so understand, like Christ himself is God. He is the fullness of God. He's the image of God. Everything was created for him, through him, by him. And he holds it all together. Uh, Later on, Paul says again, and this is just to drive this point home, right? For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Um, what's he saying here? He's saying um, Christ, is, Christ is fullness of God. It's not like God's little finger. He wasn't God's finger puppet, right? It wasn't like, you know, there was a false teaching for a long time where they say, well, when Jesus was baptized, God sort of like dumped a little bit of his deity in him. And then when he died on the cross, he pulled it out right before the last heartbeat. And that was that. That's nonsense. It's not scriptural. Um, Christ was All that is God. And he continues to be physical, which is a thing that we don't talk about very often. But like the the incarnation was forever. Right? Like when you encounter Christ in heaven, you will encounter a physical Christ with like holes in his hands and his side and everything. Like that was it. This is a one-way trip for him by choice. Again, for you. And we have been filled in him. What does that mean? It means that in Christ we are filled with Christ. We know him. Again, I'm going to touch on John. Uh, Paul preached this. or Not Paul, Jeremy. They're similar. <laughs> Take a sip of my tea real quick. Paul is the only word that's coming out of my mouth today. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, meaning Jesus, right? The word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what's the point of all this? First off, when we encounter Christ, when we encounter the baby in the manger, when we sing songs about go tell it on the mountain and everything else, um, we are singing about Jesus who is fully and completely God. He is perfect like in his revelation, he perfectly reveals God to us. Um, and he would, like, otherwise we would not be able to know him, not be able to see him, not be able to be in his presence or for him to be in us. Um, Christ is what makes it possible, but he is God come to us. He is God the beggar. Having stepped away from worshiping angels and into our place. That is Amazing. Right? Just think about that a minute. Again, maybe hit play on that tape. You know the one that comes up in the middle of the night? 
You know, and some of you have a few of them. I've got a best hits myself. And when it plays, I say, Jesus died for that. He came in the flesh for that. Because he loves me. And he loves you. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, he might be preeminent. Again, this is a song, by the way. I don't know what the tune is. I really want TJ to write one. Can you do that? Can you set this to music for me? Okay. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Not a rap. (laughs) Never mind then. (laughs) We're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians 15 because I love this phrase. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, and by a man come, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all men be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Um, why am I saying this? Because in every part of everything, Christ is preeminent. So in the church, when we gather and we worship and we talk about the color of carpets, which we have not had to talk about ever and hopefully will never talk about again, but people fight over that, right? And they fight over, I had somebody call me on Christmas Eve once years and years ago to yell at me about how cookies were served in Christmas Eve service. And she wasn't there. Christ is the head of that. Christ is the head of masks and shots in this building or not in this building, or if we're going to allow or not allow the whole thing, Christ is the head of all of it. Christ is the head of your frustration with the people around you or your struggles to be real around the people around you because, I mean, honestly, the church is full of that. I remember when I was, like, like drunk every night and I wished I could talk to people, but I couldn't because church people are scary. But in reality, church people are supposed to be Christ. He is our head. We are his body. He is preeminent. He is over all of it. If you are not the person who's safe to talk to, if you're not the person who shows grace to the guy next to you, whether he's doing what you want him to or not in relation to the stupid, or not the stupid, the serious and scary pandemic thing, or whatever, like in relation to the carpets, in relation to cookies, everything, everything is Christ. And so when we back up and we look and we say, wow, I didn't like how cookies were done. Am I going to call and cuss at that guy? Or am I going to pray? Am I going to show love of Jesus? Am I going to be Christ? Because one is what we're called to. One is an extension of the incarnation where he shows up in the flesh and then he shows up in us and we imitate him and we become like him or we don't, right? He is preeminent and the guide and purpose in our lives or it isn't. Which is the best Christmas gift you could possibly get? Do you guys ever feel like you're wandering through your days? There are times when I just feel like, man, I'm going to get up and go to work, and then I'm going to work, and I'm going to come home, I'm going to make dinner, I'm going to eat, and I'm going to go to bed, and then I'm going to get up and do it again. I'm going to get 900 phone calls from this particular person. I'm going to be on the phone for this amount of time. Then I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and it all feels so pointless. And I'm the pastor. But it happens. At the end of the day, I can back up, and I should back up every day and pray, saying, God, you are preeminent. I'm doing this because of you. If I'm painting bridges, I'm doing it because I belong to Christ. If I'm parenting, if I'm mopping, if I'm lancing boils in calves, it's because I am imitating Christ and I've got to figure out how to be Jesus in that process. 
He is preeminent in all things. And so part of the incarnation, right? It starts out with um, like God doing this because he loves us. He is fully one of us. And then he is over everything. He gives us purpose. He gives us help. He gives us comfort. He gives us meaning. He gives us hope in all things. He is preeminent. He is the boss. He is at the top. And it all orbits around him. Sorry, teenagers. I know it's a hard bit of news. The world does not revolve around you or me, which was a really disturbing thing to find out. Uh, So on back to Colossians. Uh, For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let me read that again. Was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, It is easy to lose sight of what's being said here the fullness of god was pleased to dwell um we talked about uh kids beds this morning and how like sleeping with a small child in the bed is just the worst thing ever right and especially like a crib bed or something because they're hard and they're uncomfortable and the kid is kicking you in the face 90% of the time or they're peeing everywhere, which I know children are wonderful gifts from God and all that. But like sleeping in the same bed with them is awful. Um, sleeping in a tent. You guys have heard me say it before. It is awful. Could you imagine if it was a tent that was way too small to fit all of you in and it was leaky and the people in the tents around you were nasty to you the whole time? And it was probably snowing, and you're used to living in a mansion, right? Like he dwelled in us, the, the tent of the tabernacle of our bodies, right? Like of Christ, he came and dwelled amongst us, with us, as one of us in the worst lodging possible, the human body. And if you don't doubt me, I'm telling you, wait until you're a little older and arthritis finds you, Right? headaches and everything else like the body is not a like it's supposed to be a wonderful thing but it's infected and you know but why did he do it why did he do it he did it because he loved us right i sleep in a tent sometimes with my kids because they want to sleep in a tent i don't like it you know what i like my kids he dwelled low in bad settings. He went through things that he would otherwise never have to. He experienced beating and mockery and betrayal and death. And he did it because he loves you. He made peace on your behalf at the cross. And it started at Christmas. It's what we're celebrating. He showed up and dwelt amongst us. And he was punished for your sins. At the end of the road. So that I can be made new. So you can be made new. So we can be made clean. So when that tape starts up, you can say that Eric's dead. He's buried in my baptism. I'm in Christ now. I'm a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. To quote Paul. Uh, Probably not. I don't know. Hebrews, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
Say that again, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Meaning Christ himself, like, like, endured it. And he endured it because he loves us. He endured it because it was worth it. He endured it because he was setting out to rescue us. And it's the same thing as, no, it's not the same thing. There is no same thing. As close as I can recommend or describe, it's like sitting up with your kid, right? They have a fever and they're throwing up and you've got to ride it out with them because they're sick. And it's your job. Christ came to save us. When we were sick, when we were infected, when we were dying. Boy, that's great. I don't think anybody's ever had that much joy to deal with me ever. Right? Y'all are listening to the sermon and thinking, I know I'm not. Um... It was for joy and for love that he did it. Not hallmark love. Real, like passionate, powerful, stepping away from the castle love. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which you which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which i paul became a minister or jeremy maybe i don't know um this is actually not part of the song i think this is where he sort of shifts away and talks um what's he saying he's saying listen when you were wicked, when you were broken, when you were sinful, he came for you, right? When, when you were the, the, the least desirable, he came and reconciled you. And now we're called to live like, like he really came in the flesh. Like it's really true. Like it's really on us. We're to remember that gospel. And it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget when life is awesome because you don't need help, Right? It's easy to forget when life is busy because there's everything else in the world to do. It's easy to forget when your feelings are hurt or when you're depressed or when whatever because it seems like, how could God love me? And in Christmas, we see the first volley, the first step in what he is willing to do on your behalf. My final, like the final point in the text we're looking at, the big idea in the text itself is God was pleased. He was joyed. And he was glorified, meaning it was good for him. It reflected on him and how awesome he is, like, through Christ's life, death, and resurrection for our sin. Meaning Christ came in the flesh. He was born on Christmas. The body, the physical man, surrounded by shepherds and pagan astrologer, wise men guys, and and in a cave, basically, that that was a stable and, and everything else, like... Like all of this stuff, God was pleased that this was the beginning of the process, that all of this happened for you, to reconcile you to him. So the birth of Jesus, uh, big idea. So like the idea is the concepts behind the text itself. Because for those of you all who have not figured out what I do here, the goal is to bring out the big ideas in the text, the key points, 
to present the concepts behind them, and then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do with them. So our big ideas. Uh, the birth of Jesus was God revealing himself at our level, right? So when we talk about Jesus, we talk about the birth, we talk about everything. That is God amongst us. That is us. We can know God. He is not this mysterious clockmaker who wandered off. He's not an absent father. He is not any of that stuff. He's not an angry policeman. He showed up amongst us. Jesus came to save us from our sins because he loves us and desires to be in relationship with us. He is willing to go to any length for us. Probably the best illustration we see in the Old Testament is the story of Hosea. Do you guys know this one? Hosea was a prophet. And God said, Hosea, go marry that girl, Gomer. Not a good choice. For a lot of reasons. First off, her name was Gomer. Secondly, she was a prostitute. Right? Like, nobody wants to marry the prostitute, um, I assume, Uh especially in ancient Jewish culture where that would have been shameful. But she did not love Hosea, even though he loved her. And she ran away from him and sold herself into slavery repeatedly, like, like as a temple prostitute and a bunch of other stuff, because she would rather be a prostitute for a pagan god than married to Hosea. And God said to Hosea over and over again, go buy her back, she's your wife. They had kids together, and he named them things like, this is not my child and son of another man. Holy, what is going on there? That's awful. And in the end, what God says to Hosea is, this is what it feels like when my people run away from me, but I still love them and I still pursue them. Christ is the end of that love story and the beginning of the best part of it. Right? Where he breaks that part of us that wants to run away to slavery, to our sins, to pornography, to liquor, or, you know, our temper tantrums, which I still have sometimes. Um, every weakness and jealousy and covetry and everything else, like he died for us in that because he loves us that much. And God saved us from our sins when we were his enemies so we can pay, spend eternity with him in heaven. One of my favorite Johnny Cash songs is Meet Me in Heaven One Day. And he sings it with June and he's old and he's had a stroke. And it's hard to listen to because it's rough. But he's saying, you and I will meet in heaven and we'll spend forever there together. That is the song that God sings to us. You and I will meet and we will hang out for eternity and it will be right. What do you do with this? There's a lot of ideas. First off, Christmas is the celebration of this, right? It is the celebration of God showing up and we've got to remember it and we've got to say it and we've got to come back to it. It is so easy to get distracted away from it in the middle of turkey. We eat turkey on Christmas? Is that a thing or is it ham? I don't know. Gift buying, wrapping, the annoying guy whose lights are on all night and you can't sleep, the, <laughs> the people who are going to come visit that you wish could visit somewhere else, all of it, right? It's so stressful and annoying and it's so easy to get excited about the stuff we're getting and, and all this other stuff. But like at the end of the day, it's about this. It's about the beggar walking out of the castle because he loves you. We need to put effort into knowing Jesus. So part of the deal is, and this is the hardest part of getting married, for those of you guys who ever get married, like getting married seems like the goal line, and in reality, it is the starting line. Right? You cross that line, and you're in the process. It is easy to say, I wooed her, I tricked her into marrying me, we're done. And <laughs> I, it's really funny to watch Frank and, uh, and his wife up here uh, Madison giving him grief and him rejoicing in the fact that he tricked her into marrying him 
and like you just have no idea how much fun it is to watch you guys during sermons. We should have a second camera up here. Um, but right, so now now watch this. Um, it is the beginning of it. So if I'm in relationship with Christ, if He showed up and He saved me, He said, "I love you, even though you're horrible, even though you're you know a drunk and a thief and a liar and." You know, all of this other stuff, arrogant beyond your word, beyond means and everything else. Like, even though that's who you are, I love you and I made you right. From then on, I need to know him. It was hard to remember to talk to my wife after we got married. Isn't that weird? You remember when you used to talk all night? Remember how that went away? (laughs) Remember how your wife was like, hey, didn't we used to have conversations? We have to be in relationship with Christ. We have to talk to him. We have to pray with him and to him. We have to back up and say, you know what? Today is awful. What are you doing? Right? It's an okay thing to say. To say what next? You watch the news and say, I know you're in control, but this is miserable. We look at people who are horrible and we pray for them and we figure out how to love them like he loved them and we fall more in love with Jesus by doing that stuff. This is relationship and it's being in the body and knowing other people and finding Christ in them. That is how I started going to church. People looked like Jesus and I said, I don't know what that is, but I want it. That's what we should look like. And finally, we need to speak and live this truth, especially in this season, but all the time. Like, I remember, again, there was a time when I used to tell people about Jess to the point that they would look bored and roll their eyes, kind of like how you all look right now, right? Talked about her all the time to everyone who would listen. And it's weird how that newness gets a little less bright. I remember when I used to tell people about Jesus all the time, and now I do it for a living, which is wonderful. But it's easy to forget. It's easy to put it on the back burner. It's easy to be embarrassed by it. It's easy to... Do the Grinch that stole Christmas instead of the Savior that saved the Grinch who never repented. So as you walk out the door, as you go out, as you celebrate Christmas, first off, Merry Christmas. It is awesome, right? It is awesome. Receive the gift of Christ like a child receiving, you know, the best gift in the world and not socks. Not that socks aren't a great gift. Not a robe, not whatever. Like, it is awesome. Go out and celebrate it and enjoy it and savor it and share it and live with it. Don't spend two weeks playing with this new toy and leave it in the closet. This is it for life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you. I thank you. I, I'm so humbled by the opportunity to know you. Um, I pray that you would give us your grace this season, that we would look to you and know that that we celebrate the way we do because this is, you know, it's the birth of Jesus, but it's the anniversary. It's the anniversary of you coming for us. It's the anniversary of us, you know, being in relationship with you, of you loving us enough to turn the church into your bride. Thank you so much. Thank you that the love story you give us is better than anything Hallmark could come up with. It's life-changing and it's real. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Help us to live like it's true and be worthy of it. Amen. Have a good Sunday, guys. Six o'clock. Bring your nursing home gifts.